Thanks. Um, it's a tremendous honour to have Ken Roth, the Executive Director of Human Rights Watch, here. Um, Ken's been the Executive Director of Human Rights Watch since 1993, and under his auspices, Human Rights Watch, which was one of the first globally visionary human rights organisations, has transformed tremendously, expanding both geographically and thematically and now taking on issues like human rights violations within the US, terrorism and counter-terrorism issues and AIDS, and moving into 70 countries. Um, you're obviously here to hear Ken and not me, but I just wanted to say a few contextual words about the moment in Australia in which Ken is speaking to us. Um, as you all know, we're in the dawning moments of a new government, which amongst its election promises included a greater attention to human rights, which we can certainly do within this country. Um, Fifteen years ago, you know, I know there are people of varying ages here. Fifteen years ago, when I worked in the Human Rights Commission, Australia still had a relatively good international reputation as a country that at least nominally promoted human rights as a framework for foreign policy and domestic policy. Although, of course, you know, we had an appalling record on all counts in relation to Indigenous peoples. Um, in the last 15 years, or last 12 and a, 11 and a half years, 12 and a half years, let's be exact, um, that has worn away to a level that it's not just about the violations that we all know about, about the violations with refugees, Indigenous people, our involvement in the war of Iraq, in Iraq, our support of Guantanamo Bay and rendition, but also a loss of an understanding that human rights has to be the framework within which we consider all domestic and foreign policy issues. Um, so it's in that moment really a, a very critical moment for this country, for Human Rights Watch to be engaging in a stronger dialogue with us and to be starting to think about Australia as being a greater, uh, not, you know, not just a player with the US in relation to the war against terrorism, but also to take up its role again as one of the countries that advocates for human rights domestically and internationally. What's really, I think, important about, about Ken Roth and Human Rights Watch entering into that dialogue in Australia right now is that this is an organisation that grew out of civil society. It's an organisation that's supported by civil society and its effectiveness comes out of the action that happens at the level of civil society. And, you know, as people who are involved from various organisations in the academy, I think it's really the moment that we start taking up that role and this relationship is really a wonderful place to open that door. So it's with that that I have a great pleasure to introduce Ken Roth. Well, good evening, everyone. Um, it's, it's a complete pleasure to be here, and I appreciate you all coming out um, to, to hear me. Um, I thought what I would do is, before I go to the, the advertised topic, I would just describe a little bit um, what brings me to Australia. Danny alluded to it. But I, um, Human Rights Watch is looking at the possibility of opening an office here. And I thought I would maybe just take a few moments to describe why that is, what role we think we might play um, and then I'll, I'll, I'll go on and talk about um, democracy and its, um, its partial demise, shall we say. But um, first, as a preliminary matter, I think most of you know Human Rights Watch works today in, in 70, 80 countries on a regular basis. 
we you know have investigators or researchers in these countries who conduct very in depth investigations produce reports I'm not sure what's causing that but and they these reports we use to put pressure on abusive governments to change and in essence there are three kinds of pressure I mean the one the obvious one is shaming you know by by shining a press spotlight on a government's misconduct we can delegitimize it we can we can you know in a sense you know air it's dirty laundry in a way that no government likes and that in and of itself is a very significant source of pressure for governments to curb their abuses in the most extreme cases we will try to bring perpetrators of serious human rights abuses to justice if you commit genocide war crimes crimes against humanity we will try to see that one of the international tribunals actually prosecutes you it's the third form of pressure that really I think is the key for why we're considering moving to Australia and that is that we have always gone to allied governments that see the promotion of human rights as being one part of their foreign policy and we ask these governments to use their influence on behalf of human rights it can be as simple as you know stopping the sale of arms to an abusive government or maybe you know conditioning the next tranche of military assistance on an end to torture or a release of prisoners sometimes it's a matter of the the head of state of the target government wanting to have a summit meeting you know which they drive a certain prestige from and the government or the friendly government can say well you know not so quickly why don't you make these changes before our president meets with yours so these you know what we basically do is look at what does the target government care about and then you know which governments around the world can influence that and we will then try to convince those governments to use their influence by conditioning whatever the target government wants on certain positive changes in its human rights conduct it's it's that latter tool that has led us to think about Australia because historically I mean Human Rights Watch obviously is based in the United States we grew up in the United States and it should come as no surprise that historically we looked to Washington to play an important part in using its clout and Washington was the superpower and it had a lot of influence to use it should come as no surprise to you that these days it's harder for Washington to talk about human rights you know and and so this this you know loss of credibility has also been a loss for the human rights movement because well you know Washington always had its problems it was always inconsistent there were double standards etc etc nonetheless it was you know often the most powerful ally we had and if it's not there who replaces it so in part because of that and in part because the world simply is more multipolar today there are more centers of influence and and not all of them are terribly friendly toward human rights you know you take a place like China or Russia which are much more significant in the international domain than they were a decade ago and and this is not you know the a positive addition for the human rights cause so we have been looking around the world and figuring out which governments could we rely on to if not replace the United States at least supplement the United States and trying to build a coalition of governments that really could exert serious pressure on behalf of human rights and 
we have been opening up a series of offices, not research offices in the classic sense, but rather what you might call press and advocacy offices. The idea is to take the information that we collect around the world and deploy it in key capitals in a way that we can convince that government to, to act on behalf of human rights. And we've now done this in, in Canada. Um, in Europe, we, we have um, offices in, in Brussels for the EU as a whole, but also in London, Paris, and Berlin for the, the three most significant EU players. Um, we have an offices in New York and Geneva to deal with the, with the United Nations. We just opened in Johannesburg because South Africa is such an important player throughout Africa. We are putting together the funding to open up in Nairobi because it's this, the, the major press center right near the African Union. The African Union is headquartered in Addis, which is not politically possible to open up in. But um, no, I think that may be my Blackberry. I'm going to turn this thing off. <laughs> but um, sorry about that. But anyway, the um, the the um, we've also opened in Cairo because we we look at this as the way of, um, of of sort of using the Arabic media um, to, to to pressure. The local government, you know, the regional governments there, and then in, in this part of the world, we're looking at a series of, of capitals to open up in. Um, one would be um, Tokyo, where I'm actually going to be next week, and we hope to have put the, together the money that would allow us to have a, an office there that deals with Japanese foreign policy. Um, Japan is a huge donor; they give money almost agnostically when it comes to human rights, and we would like to start to change that. Um, we're trying to put together uh, money for an office in Delhi which would, you know, take this huge democracy that doesn't act like a democracy in its foreign policy and to try to move it in a pro, more pro-human rights direction. Um, we actually have somebody working on China's foreign policy, which may sound like an uphill battle, but um, China has shown itself to be movable on foreign policy, at least. And if you look at sort of the evolution in Chinese policy towards Sudan and Darfur over the last, you know, 14 months or so, um, China's not doing what we want it to do, but it's doing much more of what we wanted it to do than was the case a year and a half ago. And, and with a very significant consequences on the ground because Khartoum is now under real pressure to let the UN peacekeepers in. So these are all, you know, it's, it's part of a process and we are thinking of Australia, frankly, in the same terms. Um, Australia, you know, is obviously not the largest country in the world, but it has always played the role of a significant moral force. Um, it has tended to move away from that in the last, you know, 11 years that we were referring to. Um, but, but, you know, we are at a, you know, a, a turn of events here. Um, and, and in our view, this is a propitious moment to at least consider um, trying to enlist Australia in this process. Um, when I'm aware that there are domestic human rights issues here, and, and Human Rights Watch has intervened periodically on some of those, you know, certainly in contesting Howard's, you know, Pacific solution to asylum seekers, um, in challenging, um, say, the, the, the use of control orders, often amounting to house arrest, you know, without access to secret evidence. Um, there have been a number of places where we have intervened, but I'm also aware that there is a, um, you know, very strong domestic human rights movement here that where it's just not clear what our value added would be on a day-to-day -day basis. And so we're not envisioning this as being a, um, a domestic-oriented presence, but rather one that would take the information that we have collected from around the world and, and make it available to policymakers, hopefully so they do the right thing on their own. You know, hopefully this is what they want to do. But, you know, I'm, I'm realistic here. And, and um, I recognize that, that, you know, often it takes a little bit of a push. 
and, and we would also envision our office making this information available to the press and indeed trying to highlight more than would be the case otherwise Australia's relationship to the world, um, the bilateral relationships and, and, and how human rights enters into those equations so that the press begins to cover that more. And, and obviously when, when people are being watched by the press, they tend to behave better. And, and that would be, you know, part of the theory for, for the presence here. Um, and, I, and frankly, I see, you know, I see a lot of room for Australia's influence. If you, um, you know, beginning with China, with, with Rudd speaking fluent Mandarin and clearly, you know, having a, a warm relationship with Beijing, there's a long history of Australia providing technical assistance um, in the human rights realm to the Chinese government. Indeed, it probably has more latitude to do that than anyone else for, for various historical reasons. And so, um, you know, there, there clearly is a, a great opportunity to nudge things in a positive direction, particularly with the Olympics coming and China's, you know, extraordinary sensitivity to negative press during this period. You know, his desire for the Olympics to be a real coming out party to, to show that it, it has escaped the shadow of Tiananmen Square. And, and we shouldn't let that be an easy process if indeed so much repression continues. And, and I think, you know, were Australia to join with other Western allies in highlighting that, it could make a significant difference in the short term on the domestic side, much the way we've seen progress in terms of foreign policy for China. Um, but, you know, if you go around the region, there are a number of places where Australia could be playing more of a role. In, in, in Sri Lanka, it could be helping with the effort to get a UN human rights monitoring mission deployed there, which is really our top priority for that um, newly war-torn country where the war is really revived after a period of, of ceasefire. Um, Vietnam, um, Australia is a very significant donor. Human rights hardly ever come up in the conversation. Um, this is an area where, where we would look to encourage much more involvement on human rights issues. Um, in Indonesia, there's been a, you know, Australia has engaged with COPASIS, the Special Forces Unit, um, and has really stopped being a force um, to encourage the, the process that is underway there of gradually exerting civilian control over the military, but a process that still has a long way to go, particularly extracting the military from commercial businesses, which create a real incentive for it to, um, to use abuse to, to keep the profit coming in. Um, you know, places like PNG, where, where Australia is the dominant force and, and is, is the key to trying to solve issues of police abuse. You know, I could go on. There, there even are, are, frankly, you know, multilateral issues, such as, you know, the positive role Australia has played in, in defending the International Criminal Court from attacks by Washington or, or indifference from Khartoum, what have you. Um, it's been a very important backer, along with Canada and New Zealand, of this important international institution. And... Um, you know, other places where it's doing less than it should. Um, Human Rights Watch has been very involved in, in the efforts to create a treaty to ban cluster bombs or cluster munitions. And Australia is, you know, positively inclined, you know, kind of makes good noises every once in a while, but is pushing for a series of exemptions that would make it much harder for us to have kind of a clear categorical prohibition of the sort needed to stigmatize and thus stop use of this, um, this inhumane weapon system. So, you know, I've been going on a bit, but th this gives you a sense of sort of the types of things that we'd like to look at. And um, I, I hope we'll be able to. We really are, frankly, right now just trying to put together the money. We have to deal with um, getting tax-exempt status. I mean, they're all kind of, you know, ugly, pragmatic things. But um, assuming we can do this, We've been getting a very positive response, and, and I certainly would like to be able to, to add Australia 
um, to our, the series of offices that we've been able to open in recent years since I think it would greatly strengthen our ability to, to defend human rights around the world and particularly in Asia. Moving um, more to the topic at hand. Um, I promised that I would talk about um, the, the tendency of autocrats to try to pass themselves off as Democrats. And the good news in my discussion today is that they all want to. You know, that there is enough value in the label of being a democracy that all these, you know, thugs and tyrants around the world want to pass themselves off as, as really heading democracies. And so, you know, we clearly have values there. Um, we have a path to legitimacy that everybody wants. And, and that is, you know, something to celebrate because it, you know, wasn't always like that. It, democracy was not always so popular. Um, the bad news is that these um, autocrats are getting away with calling themselves Democrats, that, that the established democracies, the West, is letting them do that. And so what I'd like to talk about today is, is a little bit about, you know, how we got there, um, how this process is, is, is proceeding, um, what are the reasons for Western complacency, and what would we have to reverse for, um, for it to be harder for autocrats to get away with this charade. Um, let me just begin a little bit with the problem. And to give you a sense of the kinds of people who um, are pronouncing themselves democracy these days. You know, we have certain well-known examples. You know, people like Vladimir Putin in Russia or, or Mwai Kibaki, the, the, you know, the latest democratically elected leader of Kenya, um, you know, who just blatantly stole the election. Um, you know, President Yoradwa of Nigeria, who used massive fraud um, to, to gain his election about a year ago. Um, people like, you know, Hosni Mubarak in Egypt, who, you know, allows one person to run against him and then promptly imprisons him for five years um, and, and, you know, ensures that um, in the parliamentary elections that, that there are no centrist political parties to, to run against him. Um, you know, Musharraf has been the famous recent example where he really tried to pass himself off as a Democrat and, and got himself selected as president even though he, you know, refused to take off the uniform until that happened, even though the Constitution said that without the uniform off, he couldn't become president. Um, you know, just ignored those rules and, and, and made it happen. He, of course, has had a tougher time recently with the elections that just happened. But there are, you know, people like Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe who have used, you know, blatant violence to stay in power and in the process has utterly destroyed his country. Um, Mela Zanawi, who is um, the, the, the head of Ethiopia, who again used violence and blatant corruption and, and, and fraud to, to cling to power. Um, even, you know, Hu Jintao, um, the Chinese leader, has described himself and, and China as a democracy. Um, you know, you've got, um, I mean, I think the most extreme case is maybe um, Islam Karimov of Uzbekistan, who has, you know, 7,000 political prisoners, tortures them all, um, has shut down civil society, three years ago massacred um, hundreds of people in a town for having the audacity to hold a demonstration, and he still held an election in December, you know, and, and, and declared himself a democratically elected leader. You know, you got to ask it with somebody like that, you know, why, why did he bother? I mean, what did he think he was getting away with by, by holding this ridiculous charade? Well, you know, what they get away with is obviously this, this, this label of legitimacy, and in many ways, I guess the question to ask is, you know, why do we let them? And, and at a certain obvious level, it is, um, you know, they have oil and gas, they have commercial opportunities, they're seen as an ally in fighting terrorism. It's the usual um, geopolitical factors. 
But I do think that there are some new things going on, and I'd like to kind of delve into them a little bit. Um, first, let me just describe a bit the kind of techniques that people use, these autocrats use, to, um, to, to try to mount a democracy without the, um, the synchronon of a democracy, which is actually subjecting yourself to the, to the will of the people. Um, that's obviously a risky proposition. You don't know what the people are going to want. And, and, and so dictators will do everything they can to avoid really giving the people a political choice. Um, it, it often starts, I found, as I've kind of looked around the world, with, um, with a certain rhetorical game playing. Um, you can often tell that there's going to be trouble when the autocrat puts an adjective before the term democracy. I mean, that's always kind of a, a warning sign you see. Um, you know, Putin did this by talking about sovereign democracy. When, you know, as far as I can tell, what that means is you follow the will of the sovereign who is Putin. You know, he was not referring to the people having sovereignty. Um, you know, the Burmese military junta has talked about disciplined democracy, which, of course, you know, means following military discipline and doing what they tell you to do. Um, you know, China, of course, has used socialist democracy, which in their case seems to have been um, kind of well captured by the fact that they let 221 candidates run for 204 seats in the Central Committee. Um, so I, I guess if you do the math quickly, I don't know, what does that come up to be? Um, you know, 17 contested seats out of, you know, 200 plus. Um, that was their idea of socialist democracy. Um, you know, Musharraf talked about genuine democracy, which, you know, seemed to be the type where you rip up the Constitution as opposed to, you know, um, you know fake democracy where you actually let people vote. Um, one of my favorites was um, I was in um, Libya a couple of years ago, and Gaddafi talks about participatory democracy, you know, which sounds great, right? I mean, what's wrong with participatory democracy? Um, what he means is, you know, imagine you're all, you're all in, in Libya. You have been called to your local kind of block meeting to participate in democracy. And so you all come together in a mandatory meeting so that you can affirm what I've asked you to vote on. And because you're all participating in the democracy, um, you don't need a political party because you're here. You know, you don't need to be represented. And you don't need a press to have, a, you know, to debate issues because you're, you know, in the hall and you can debate it yourself. Um, and you don't need to have, you know, free expression outside because it's all happening right in here. And, and so it's, it's a wonderful theory where you don't really need any of the political freedoms that we usually expect to have with a democracy because you're participating. And, and, you know, and the fact that you're participating, you know, under threat of imprisonment for doing the wrong thing, we kind of ignore. Um, so yeah, it's a nice theory. But, um, you know, these, these kind of rhetorical games are often a great signal um, to look at, you know, sort of the shenanigans behind the scene. And, and there's plenty. I mean, there, there are a variety of techniques, none of these r rocket science exactly, but, but techniques that, that dictators have figured out are a good way to prevent the unpredictability of genuine elections. And so, you know, sometimes it's just blatant fraud of the course, the type that, you know, you saw in Kenya um, under Kibaki or, or, or Yaradwa in, in Nigeria. Um, you know, sometimes if, if the fraud is harder to pull off, they, they figure out you can just control the electoral commission. And so even if you weren't able to stuff the ballot box, they'll count it in the way that, you know, is as if you did. Um, and it's as if you kind of, you know, buy off the empire. And so you, you're sure that, you know, you're, the referee will always rule your way. I and mean, that, that's a technique that, um, you know, Kenya certainly used quite recently. Zimbabwe has used it. Um, Thailand, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's one that you see around the world. Um, one great technique is to, um, if you see an opposition candidate who
who might be threatening, who might actually be appealing to people, you disqualify them. And, and this is um, – the people who are great at this are, is the Iranians. You know, they have this whole um, guardian council whose job, among others, is to um, look through anybody who might be running for office. And they do have, you know, genuinely contested elections in Iran. Most people don't really focus on that. But they're contested among candidates who pass muster. And the guardian council's job is to make sure that no um, independent candidate, the one who might be too challenging to the powers that be, is allowed to run. And so they're all just disqualified in, in, in large numbers. Um, you know, Cuba has done something similar. I mean, Russia under Putin just now, you know, how do you make sure that Medvedev gets 70 percent of the vote? Well, you make sure that anybody who might have popular appeal can't run. And, and, but, of course, they couldn't, you know, have – it would look bad if there was only Medvedev running. So they allowed, you know, this, this discredited nationalist – um, Zhirinovsky, they allowed, you know, kind of a, a long-gone communist, and then one-third, like, nobody who, you know, nobody had even heard of, and most people feel the Kremlin just kind of appointed him as a candidate. Um, that's the competition. And then, of course, you know, Medvedev comes home with 70 percent. So, you know, again, these are um, interesting ways of manipulating the process that, that can be quite effective if you don't look too closely. Um, you know, if, if, if these kinds of cleaner techniques don't work, you can always resort to political violence. And, and, and this is um, something that, you know, in Nigeria they use these so-called cults to, to simply kill off anybody who's mounting too much of a challenge. Um, you know, Mugabe in Zimbabwe used his war veterans to, to pummel um, opposition candidates, and, and certainly that's something that can discourage them from running. Um, sometimes, you know, if you, you are going to allow the opposition to field candidates, you can just make sure that they don't get any access to the press or that the press um, only discusses them in negative terms. Um, Putin figured this out very well by, by simply taking over the electronic media in Russia, the, the main source of information, and he made sure that particularly the TV stations were owned by, by his cronies, who all towed the pro-Kremlin line. And so, you know, people who were trying to be challengers just couldn't get on TV. Nobody could, could gain access to their views, while TV shows these, you know, fawning images of, of Putin or Medvedev or whoever um, the, the Kremlin-selected candidate was. Um, if you, you know, can't get on TV, can't get on the radio, the press isn't covering you, one way to show your support is to hold a rally and to kind of show your, um, your strength in numbers. And, of course, then many of these governments are quick to prohibit rallies. Um, Malaysia just did this recently. Um, you can't have more than five people together without permission. That, of course, is never forthcoming. Um, you know, Zimbabwe figured this out as well. Um, or you just shut down civil society. Um, you do this in either a kind of totalitarian sense of the sort that you'd see in a place like Turkmenistan or Uzbekistan, or you do it somewhat more subtly. I mean, Putin figured out that you don't need to shut down civil society organizations. You just adopt um, regulations that are so hyper-technical that um, it's basically impossible not to violate them. And then you send inspectors after any organization that deals with controversial subjects so that they're so busy fending off the inspectors, they don't really have time to deal with, you know, Chechnya or human rights or press freedom or whatever the controversial topic is that they're not supposed to be touching. Um, so, you know, these are among the, the, the tools that you see when you look around the world. And, you know, none of these are, are terribly subtle, as, you, as you're sensing. Um, if you had a vigorous Western defense of, of meaningful democracy, not the sham democracy, um, it would be easy enough to point this out, and, and, and thus it would be harder for autocrats to get away with, um, you know, with calling themselves democrats. But instead, what we have found very frequently 
is a, a kind of a Western acquiescence in this charade. Um, the, the most recent example that um, you know really struck me was the response of President Bush to Musharraf's declaration of so-called emergency rule last November. Um, you may recall that um, he declared emergency rule just as the Supreme Court was about to rule that his ascension to the presidency was unconstitutional because he had not removed his, his uniform first. And rather than subject himself to that um, indignity of, of being found to be illegitimate, he simply um, shut down the Supreme Court, fired the judges who were independent, locked up several thousand opposition figures, um, silenced the press, you know, essentially imposed martial law, although he didn't call it that. He, he used the euphemism emergency rule. Um, what was George Bush's response to that? Well, he said that Musharraf had not crossed the line, that Musharraf still believes in democracy, and that Pakistan is still on the road to democracy. Now, you know, you can imagine, if you can do all that and still be on the road to democracy, I mean, this, you know, warms the heart of autocrats around the world because they look at Musharraf and say, you know, I could be a Democrat too. If he can get away with that, I could use those techniques and, 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 and still stay in control. Um, and so, it, you know, it, it set a disastrous precedent. It really lowered the bar for what it took to be admitted to the Club of Democracies. I mean, even after the election, after the Pakistani people, against all odds, you know, after assassinations, etc., still were able to express their vote and, and basically made one big vote against Musharraf, even then, Bush refused to recognize reality and, and um, was pushing for um, the, the, the two secular parties that had won, the PPP and Nawaz Sharif's party, pushing for them to cut a deal with Musharraf. They refused to endorse reinstatement of the Supreme Court judges for fear that they would then dismiss Musharraf. Um, you know, all along it was, you know, we're going to go with Musharraf, our Democrat, rather than the voice of the people, which had just spoken quite clearly. And so, you know, that is... Um, you know, an example of how the U.S. government has been very um, unwilling to stick with democratic principles. It's been willing to bend those for, in this case, reasons of, of, of counterterrorism. But, you know, there are other reasons that come up in other situations. I don't want to suggest, though, that this is just an American problem. Um, Europe was recently tested. The, the leading European pro-democracy body is something known as the Organization on Security and Cooperation in Europe, the OSCE. And the OSCE, among other things, monitors elections, um, principally in the post-Soviet states. It recently went to Kazakhstan, which held parliamentary elections in August. And as it was touring various polling places around the country, 40% of the polling places it visited they found fraud. But despite that, um, they issued an announcement saying that the elections amounted to movement forward in Kazakhstan's evolution toward democracy. You know, whatever that means. Um, and you have to say, well, why did they do this? Well, they didn't want to undermine what um, Nazarbayev, the, the Kazakh president, really wanted, which was to be named chairman of the OSCE which they proceeded to give him. And so beginning in 2010, Kazakhstan is going to have the chairmanship of Europe's leading pro-democracy body. You know, it's pretty pathetic. Now, you know, the reasons were, well, you know, Kazakhstan has oil and gas, you know, and, and Russia is vying to kind of 
make Kazakhstan a Russian ally and Europe is trying to pull him away from Russia. And so what better way than to anoint Nazarbayev the chairman of the OSCE? Um, and so, you know, in the interest of these kind of commercial or geopolitical considerations, Europe basically dispensed with the credibility of its, its leading pro-democracy body. So, you know, I could give many other examples, but there, are, um, there has been a kind of a lack of backbone on the part of the established democracies to stand up for the principles that are really at stake here. Now, can, let's try to dissect that a little bit and see what's going on. Um, one factor in this, which I think is important to stress, which really is a factor independent of the behavior of any government, is the fact that there is no treaty defining what a democracy is. You know, there is no international covenant on democracy. And so when you talk about democracy, there is this way in which democracy is in the eyes of the beholder. Um, because democracy kind of, you know, can mean different things to different people. Now, we all have a kind of intuitive sense what it means, that it, it you know, means you get to elect the people who represent you. Um, there should be some debate before you vote. You should be able to vote freely. Um, but, you know, after that, people, you know, people's views may differ. And, and this is, you know, in contrast to international human rights law, which, of course, is very specific and binding. And so, you know, one problem with talking in terms of democracy is that you lose sight of the specificity of the human rights that, that frankly, make democracy meaningful. Um, and so, you know, my preference would be to talk in terms of human rights law, where if you even just take the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, the, the leading human rights treaty in this area, um, it does have, you know, democracy-related clauses in it. So it talks about genuine periodic elections, universal suffrage, um, the, the right to, to elect one's representative in government. Um, so those are, you know, kind of democracy-type terms. But it then also has the basic rights that guarantee the, the health and vigor and diversity of civil society, guarantee the freedom of the press, guarantees the rule of law, you know, meaning that government is actually subject to the law that is enacted. Um, and these, you know, fundamental principles, in my view, are essential for an election to merit being called a democracy, for, for this, you know, electoral process to be meaningful. So, you know, one problem is really just with the terminology and the lack of, of clear definition behind it. And there is, a, you know, an advantage to talk in terms of human rights rather than democracy. But governments, for, for reasons I'll get to in a moment, have preferred the democracy label, um, but there's a price to be paid in terms of specificity and, and precision. Now, a second factor um, does very much go back to Washington. And that is that one of the reasons why the Bush administration in particular likes or prefers the term democracy to human rights is the fact that, um, you know, it's hard to talk about human rights when you're George Bush. You know, I mean, the discussion of human rights conjures up these uncomfortable images of, of Guantanamo and waterboarding and, and secret CIA detention facilities. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's hard to, um, you know, you don't want to really remind people of those things. So, you know, why not go with the soft, fuzzy concept of democracy? Because um, after all, I mean, despite the 2000 presidential election, it's not as if um, people really challenge the fact that the United States is a democracy. Um, but, but when it comes to human rights, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, it's hard to go around the world and talk about torture or detention without trial or, or disappearances when you've just done these things. So um, that has been a real loss because, you know, 
as I just explained, um, if you're not using these more precise terms of human rights, it does make it easier for the, the autocrats to, to appropriate the democracy language in a, in a relatively meaningless way. Now, another factor in this, um, you may describe it as almost the, the sort of the feast factor. Do you all remember the feast? This was the, um, the Islamist party that basically won parliamentary elections in Algeria in the early 90s, but was then denied victory by the Algerian military. Um, and, and this fear of, you know, you hold a free election and the extremists win has made many established democracies reluctant to push too far with their democratic principles, particularly in the Middle East. And, and you know, we've been reminded quite recently of how things can go wrong from this perspective with Hamas's victory in the Palestinian territories or, for that matter, even in the Egyptian parliamentary elections. While the Muslim Brotherhood didn't win, um, they did win virtually all the seats that they contested. Um, they, they were prudent because they, they didn't want to invite a crackdown, so they didn't contest most of the seats. But wherever they did run, they won. And, um, and this set off panic, you know, not only um, in Mubarak's palace, but in Washington as well. And, and so there has been this tendency to say, well, you know, maybe we shouldn't push too hard for democracy, you know, particularly in Muslim countries, for fear of the Islamic extremists coming to power. Now, um, you know, I, I don't, uh, I'm not a defender of the Muslim Brotherhood or Hamas. You know, I understand that this is, these can be problematic from a human rights perspective. But I think that there's a tendency on the part of the West to fall for a ploy that people like Hazim Mubarak have been very, very skillful at using. Um, and that is to present a false dichotomy, to present their voters a choice between um, the dictator and the Islamists, knowing that in those circumstances, um, the fear of the Islamists winning will rally the West behind the dictator, which is precisely what has happened in the case of Mubarak. I mean, you know, the, the Bush has gone from um, Egypt being sort of the, the key place where it was fighting for democracy to being um, one of the places where it is most neglectful about even talking about democracy, let alone human rights, for fear of reminding people that, you know, Mubarak, um, you know, w w does not exactly have a, 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 um, an electoral mandate and that he is, um, you know, but that we need him, the U.S. needs him to, um, to fend off the Islamists. Now, um, this is by design on Mubarak's part because what he has done is ensured that there is no political center. Um, there are a bunch of secular political parties that have been vying for years, sometimes 17, 18, 19 years, to get registered, um, and the government refuses, knowing that um, if there were a variety of ways for people to express opposition to Mubarak, many people would choose the centrist route, um, and, and that centrist route would be much more palatable to the West than the, the, the sort of lingering option of the Islamists. Um, and so by, by suppressing the political center, um, Mubarak creates this false dichotomy, the Islamists are him, which the West is tend in those circumstances tended to say, okay, we'll stick with the dictator. Um, Musharraf in Pakistan also used this very effectively for a long time. He, he you know, by, by exiling both um, Benazar Bhutto and, um, and Nawaz Sharif, he ensured that um, the, the political center where, frankly, in the, the, the election before that, 90% of Pakistanis had voted, he made sure that that was not really a viable option. And so then he could present to the West, you know, well, if you, if you don't accept me as, as continuing to head the country, um, the Islamists are going to win because 
you know, in fact, the Islamists under those repressed circumstances were popular. But it was an artificially constrained, dichotomized situation. And when, as we saw, um, the PPP and, and Nawaz Sharif were able to compete, um, again, you know, as predicted, they attracted the vast majority of Pakistanis back to the political center. The Islamists actually did miserably. They, they did much worse than during the last election. And, and it suddenly became clear that it was not, you know, Musharraf who was the last bulwark against an Islamic takeover of nuclear-armed Pakistan, but rather Musharraf who was actually the guy who was cutting deals with the Islamists because they were the only force around willing to support him for a while. And, um, and that in an odd way the Islamists had flourished under Musharraf rather than, um, than Musharraf really standing up and, and trying to stop um, extremism. So, you know, one thing is to not accept this false dichotomy that governments put forward, um, that, that these kind of dictators put forward, but instead to, um, to recognize that, um, that, that holding a snap election is not necessarily the smart, smartest way to get to a more human rights respecting future, that sometimes patience is in our interest, and that um, if one is going to push for democratization, um, one should not begin by pushing for an election. One should push for the recreation of the political center by allowing civil society to reemerge, by allowing a free press to come out, by allowing a broad range of political parties to compete. And in those circumstances, you know, there's no guarantee that the political center wins, but, but experience has been that, that the political center is much more likely to prevail than extremism in those circumstances, um, highlighting the dispensability of, of the dictator. Um, of course, not a message that the dictator wants. So to be prescriptive here and to, to wrap up, um, I think it's important to recognize that by, um, by, by closing one's eyes to this kind of electoral or democratic shenanigans that so many dictators and tyrants are, are um, inclined to use these days, um, we're first of all encouraging more of the same. I mean, I think that um, one way to understand why Kibaki thought he could get away with blatant fraud even though, you know, in a sense in the parliamentary elections, the will of the Kenyan people was shown because all of Kabaki's cronies were voted out of office. But somehow, miraculously, Kabaki emerged as, you know, the elected president. You know, why did he think he could get away with this? Well, because he watched how particularly the U.S. and the U.K. responded to Yoradwa's um, electoral fraud in Nigeria six months earlier. And, and Yoradwa, you know, using massive fraud, got away with it, so why couldn't Kibaki? You know, everybody just acquiesced in it. So I think that, you know, that kind of demonstration effect from closing one's eyes to fraud or abuse only encourages more fraud and abuse, and we should be, you know, very conscious of that. Um, but, but, but second, and, and this is maybe of, of broader concern, when I, when I opened my remarks, I was describing how Human Rights Watch, one of the tools we use to push governments to respect rights is the process of shaming. And, and to be called a human rights violator is a stigmatizing process, you know, something that, that does tend to delegitimize. And so um, we can succeed in pushing governments to be more respectful for, of human rights insofar as we can stigmatize them. Um, but if these human rights violators can nonetheless say, but wait a minute, I'm a democracy, it tends to undermine our ability to stigmatize them. And, and this is a consequence of letting tyrants into the club of democracy without forcing them to pay the price of actual respect for human rights because it lets them in on the cheap. And by giving them that, that laudatory Democrat label, 
it makes it harder for us to stigmatize them for the abuses that they are committing um, on the way to trying to control the electoral process and, and, and ensure that they continue to cling to power. So in this sense, promoting democracy that is divorced from human rights standards actually not only undermines those standards, but it undermines our ability to defend the standards through these kind of shaming or stigmatizing procedures. So I would say in conclusion that, you know, by all means, you know, push for democracy. It's not like I'm against democracy. But, but push for a fuller meaning of democracy, one that is, is well-grounded um, in human rights, that, that is built on the foundation of human rights that make democracy meaningful. And indeed, what I would urge is that you don't start with the soft and fuzzy concept of democracy, but rather to start with human rights and to understand that, you know, of course, democracy is um, one of the human rights or one series of human rights, but that, that you know, what really makes the whole thing meet work is to begin with the building blocks of a free press, of free association, of, of, of a range of political parties, of a free press. Um, these kind of basic political freedoms, which, of course, are entrenched in human rights law, um, we should be pushing for those, and democracy will then quite naturally follow. Um, to, to do the reverse, to start with democracy and to ignore human rights, is to, in the end, undermine both. So let me conclude there, and I'd, I'd welcome your, your questions, comments about this or, or anything else that's on your mind. Thank you. Um, we have a microphone. You know, believe it or not, I can't see a thing from here. We have one there, and no, we only have one there. So if you'd like to step up to the microphone, then I think, Ken, you can field questions yourself. We have a little over 30 minutes. And rather than this coming afterwards, if you could make it questions and not statements, we'd appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for that. There's a clear overlap but also a clear distinction between your argument and the argument of Fareed Zakaria against illiberal democracies. But where you want to put human rights first, he wants to put the rule of law first, and his rule of law doesn't seem to have a necessary component of many of the things that you call human rights. So I'm just interested, because I'm sure you've considered the overlaps and distinctions between your view and his view, how you would make them out. Yeah. No, I mean, I, 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 think, I, mean, I think Fareed is pushing in a similar direction. Um, you know, his concept of illiberal democracies, you know, in, in some ways he's describing the same pattern that, that I'm describing. You know, his book was written a little bit earlier, and I think that the problem has become more acute since he wrote the book. Um, but you're right that in his concept of liberal democracy, it's not as if he ends up being an advocate for a full panoply of human rights. It's a, it's a much more limited um, understanding. And, you know, I don't think Freed sees himself as a human rights advocate. He's, he's much more of a realist. And, and um, you know, his talk of illiberal democracies, I think, was, was you know, as much informed by, by geopolitical considerations of who's friendly and who isn't toward the West as by a conception of human rights as, as sort of inherently good rather than just a, um, you know, a, a utilitarianly useful um, step in, in, in broader, broader geopolitical concerns. So, I mean, I think we're kind of on the same page, but he didn't go as far, perhaps, as I would have. Uh, on those grounds, yes. yes. 
Hi. I'm wondering if you'd comment a little bit more about the Americas, your take on the Americas, both north and south. You made a couple of references to the quality, I guess, of the democracy in the U.S. and the elections there. I think it was the 2004 election was just really ironic in that a couple of months later, the, oh gosh, I can't remember, the Orange Revolution was declared, you know, the power of the people and all that stuff. So for North America, and then also I just came back from a month in South America, and of course there have been some interesting geopolitical tussles happening there most recently. So can you comment a little bit on each of those and your take on them, and particularly what's happening in South America now and the players? Okay. Well, I mean, you know, in terms of U.S. democracy, I mean, I'm not going to pretend that U.S. democracy is, is, um, is, is foolproof by any means. And I think in many ways the biggest threat to U.S. democracy is that it still hasn't figured out how to deal with the role of wealth in democracy. And, you know, while there are strict limits on campaign contributions to individual candidates, there are not limits on other ways to spend money. And so money is, you know, swamping the system, and it is, I think, skewing the system. Um, and, and so it is, you know, very difficult to take, you take something like, you know, universal health care, which, you know, it's, it's almost crazy that that doesn't exist in the United States. Um, and, and, and certainly if you take polls, people are very much for it. But there is massive money um, staked on not having this happen. And, and so anybody who takes it on is facing a real uphill battle, as, as Hillary Clinton found last time she tried. And, you know, the great irony of these sort of, you know, these debates between Obama and, and, and Clinton this time around is they're focusing on these, you know, tiny little um, minor differences between their universal health care plans while ignoring what they're really going to be up against, which is, you know, a desire to prevent this from happening at all by, by some very significant power. So I think in many ways that's the biggest challenge facing American democracy today. And, and there are, you know, because of certain constitutional limits as defined by the Supreme Court, it's hard to deal with that right now. Um, so, but it, it's a problem that exists. In terms of Latin America, I mean, of the sorts of things I was talking about, um, you know, in many ways the, the, the person who's doing the most to try to control the electoral process is Chavez, who, you know, for example, shut down RCTV, the, the leading opposition TV station, just revoked its license or didn't renew it, um, basically because it had been supportive of the coup attempt against him. And that has then tamed the, the other TV stations. I mean, you, you really don't have serious opposition expressed to Chavez um, in the electronic media at that level. But, you know, even that said, there's, there still is a vibrant civil society. You know, he lost his recent referendum. I mean, there, you, you can't say that, um, that this become a dictatorship in any sense. I mean, it, it is a um, – he's doing everything he can to control the electoral process, but, but democracy is kind of fighting back and, and still has a fighting chance there. So um, – you know, overall, you know, I think that the trend in Latin America has been, you know, quite positive. Um, I mean, the, the biggest country to kind of make the transition in recent years has been Mexico, which, you know, has really moved to a, you know, much more pluralistic system now. And uh, the last presidential election, it was very unclear who was going to win. And indeed, it was, you know, it, it was incredibly close and, and somewhat contested. So I'm not sure what more you had in mind, but it's... Yeah, no, that, that's some of it. But also, uh, I'm kind of curious about how the alliances are shaping up um, because, again, it's sort of a polarized situation where, you know, in Ecuador they can say, oh, well, Chavez, you know, they're kind of cozying up to Chavez, but they're also trying to move toward a much more equitable and democratic society and all that. So do you see that as becoming even more polarized? And then a country like Peru, which is just really socked into corporate 
major corporate capital capitalism and everything, and, and the divisions between rich and poor are pretty entrenched in Chile as well. So how do you see the alliances among the countries and human rights and all that playing Well, you know, I mean, there obviously is this, you know, somewhat leftist block that has emerged between, you know, Korea and Ecuador, um, Morales in Bolivia, Chavez in Venezuela, Ortega in Nicaragua, and, and then, you know, the new Castro, Raul Castro in Cuba. I mean, that's sort of, you know, a, a vague alliance. But mm-hmm. I wouldn't overstate that too much because mm-hmm. – um, the only one with any real um, kind of serious effort to sort of build an ideology that would be um, – would reach across the Americas has been Chavez. Mm. And Chavez is having a tough time. You know, mm. he's kind of, kind of ruining the economy at home. Um, he did just lose the referendum, as I mentioned. Uh, so it's, it's by no means clear that he's even succeeding on his own turf, let alone that he's exporting, you know, his Bolivarian revolution. Mm. So um, – I think this, you know, there was much talk of this divide in Latin America about a year ago. It hasn't really come to pass. So, um, you know, I guess I, I'm a little more optimistic about directions there than, than you know, might have been widespread a year ago. Okay. Uh, okay. I don't want to hog this at all, but the, the issue of wealth distribution is so yeah. fundamental to human rights because in the States you can have – everything listed as being access to um, even defendants, you know, whatever, access to legal representation. But the de facto situation is that it just doesn't exist. So would you say that human rights is really tied to an economy that, you know, that that it puts its money where its mouth is, basically, in terms of human rights? I mean, clearly the distribution of wealth is an enormous issue throughout Latin America. Mm -hmm. And and, – and that has human rights consequences in economic and social rights terms. Because, mm-hmm. you know, one of the questions you have to ask is, are these governments progressively realizing, you know, the right to health, or the right to education, or the right to housing on the basis of available resources, when, in fact, there are significant resources in these societies, but they are husbanded by a relatively small group of people and not made available to, to the more impoverished sectors. And, and I think that that's a huge challenge facing Latin America right now. Yes. Thanks for being here. I have two questions. First of all, I was wondering what Human Rights Watch's opinion on the controversies surrounding electronic voting in America is, especially with regard to companies like Diabold. And I think it was the New Hampshire primary where Dennis Kucinich demanded a recount because of voting discrepancies. And my second question is, um, of the candidates for the 2008 election, Obama, Hillary and McCain, do any of them have any respect for human rights? And... If so, which ones? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, those are both tricky questions in different ways. Um, the Diebold question, you know, to be honest, we don't take a position on that. I mean, you know, we're obviously for accountable voting processes. Um, it's best to have some way to, 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 to verify in the event of a challenge. And you know, so the fact that there are these kind of recordless voting procedures are, um, are potentially dangerous. Um, and, you know, but it's not something we've opined on. I mean, there are sort of groups that specialize in that. And, and so Human Rights Watch hasn't taken that on as a, as a real issue. In terms of, you know, if you look at McCain, Obama, or Hillary Clinton, um, you know, there's something to be said for each of them. And I think a lot that we don't know. Um, you know, with, with McCain, I mean, Human Rights Watch actually worked very closely with McCain to adopt anti-torture legislation a couple of years ago. And he, at that point, he was bucking George Bush. He was being very courageous. He was standing for principle. And he got legislation through the Senate with a 90-to-9 vote. 
Um, so it was, you know, it was a big deal. But then when we tried to come back um, and, and, you know, insist on habeas corpus, he voted against us. Um, when just recently, this last week, we, um, there's legislation that would extend the interrogation rules that the U.S. military has adopted for itself, which are quite good now, trying to extend those rules to the CIA, where George Bush has insisted that it has latitude to use waterboarding. And this anti-waterboarding legislation, McCain wouldn't support. And veto, and, and Bush then vetoed it. So, um, you know, it's hard to know where he stands sometimes. And, and, you know, obviously these more negative positions have been in the context of the election or closer to the election. But, you know, it's, it's just, it's hard to say. With, um, with Obama and Hillary, I think, you know, they're both, um, they've been both kind of much more outspoken on waterboarding and things like that. I think in many ways the big challenge facing both of them, and I don't know how either will respond, is how do you close Guantanamo? And what I fear, I mean, what clearly some academics are already pushing is the way to close Guantanamo is basically to move it onshore. You know, that, that rather than either prosecuting or releasing people, and by prosecuting I mean giving them real trials, not these pseudo-trials before the, the military commission that David Hicks appeared before, but given, you know, real trial in, in regular criminal court, um, or you release them. Um, and that, I think, is, you know, is the appropriate answer to Guantanamo. But there are some people saying, oh, you know, you really can't trust the criminal justice system in terrorism cases. It's, you know, it's too backwards looking and you've got to be preventive with, with fighting terrorism or, or there's too much classified evidence and the courts can't deal with that or, or there's security concerns or this and that. Therefore, what we need is a system of preventive detention. We need to be able to detain people without criminally charging them, but just having some sort of more cursory procedure where on the basis of intelligence that is supplied unilaterally by the CIA, um, a judge can say, yes, you're dangerous, we're going to detain you. And, and that is very much going to be put on the table as an option. And it's going to take um, real you know, courage and principle to say no, that that is not the way we're going in shutting Guantanamo. But I'm afraid that, that a, you know, a deal is going to be put close Guantanamo, but give me preventive detention. And, and um, we don't yet know where either Hillary or Obama stands on that. But that, I think, is going to be, in a sense, the toughest decision they're going to face. They're going to have no trouble applying the military interrogation rules to the CIA. They'll shut down the secret CIA detention facilities. They'll, they'll get rid of waterboarding. I mean, that all will be easy. But the tough thing is what are they going to do about Guantanamo? And we just don't know yet. I wanted to ask you about um, your views or Human Rights Watch views about the um, Israel-Palestine conflict. Obviously, there's a sense um, that um, much of the debate in the world, in the Western world at the moment, seems to be moving towards a situation where the rhetoric very much is about two states. We hear this from Washington, Canberra, London, etc., etc., whereas the reality on the ground appears to be that two states is becoming increasingly untenable for the settlement expansion, etc., etc. Well, how do you see this progressing. It's impossible to predict, I know, but what is your sense about where this seems to be going and do you ever get a sense that there is likelihood in the coming years, either with a new president or in some other way, to pressure either Israel to change its behaviour, modify its behaviour, or for that matter, change the whole dynamic of that conflict? Yeah, well, I'm going to disappoint you a little bit here because Human Rights Watch actually doesn't take a position on whether there should be a two-state solution or one-state solution. And this is part of our broader approach, which is that in conflicts, we don't take sides. Um, we don't say who the aggressor is and who the defender is. We don't say who is right and who is wrong. We don't say what the peace should look like. 
Um, and the reason we maintain that neutrality on those kinds of um, issues is so that we have maximum credibility to deal with how wars are fought. Um, I mean, the legal terms here is we deal with jus in bello, not jus ad bello. We deal with the way wars are fought, not with the legitimacy of why a war is fought. And, and so um, our attention has been much more focused on um, the abuses that, frankly, both sides have been committing. So we, we've been very critical of Palestinians for, for the suicide bombing attacks on civilians, for, for firing the Qassam rockets into Sederot or Ashkelon. Um, we've been very critical of the Israelis for, for basically imposing this, you know, this siege on Gaza and, and trying to sort of gradually, um, you know, if not starve it to death, at least squeeze civilians until they do something about Hamas. Um, we've been critical of their um, indiscriminate and, and, you know, sort of their bombing with in certain indifference to civilian casualties. Um, where I think I maybe can come closer to giving you an answer is that I think that the abuses by both sides are making it much more difficult for us to make any political progress. And that if there is ever going to be some kind of reconciliation on whatever terms between Israelis and Palestinians, um, there has to be an end to these attacks on civilians. And, and um, each side thinks that the answer is to be tough, and, and, and of course they're only retaliating for what the other side did, and you know, there are all these rationalizations for the current policy. Um, I think it's worth stepping back and recognizing that, that it's making life worse for both sides. You know, Israel is not more secure. Life for the Palestinians is not better. And, and what we need is, frankly, leadership on both sides to say that and to stop this tit-for-tat abuse and, and try to, you know, create a political environment in which it's possible to make these tough compromises. And that's going to require kind of an end to, to the, the targeting or the indifference to attacks on civilians. I'm interested in your views on uh, countries like, uh, you mentioned Australia and Japan and the US, obviously, um, that are large donor countries, um, uh, on using some kind of conditionality in, in donor relationships because, uh, I mean, traditionally you could say there's rather crudely sort of bad conditionality, which is where countries imply, uh, imply some kind of conditionality which benefits their own country's commercial interests, whereas mm. the good conditionality, which you're sort of implying, is you know to promote human rights and, and so forth. Um, but even with that good conditionality, um, the research sort of suggests that what you're creating is a situation where governments are in fact accountable to donors rather than necessarily being accountable to their citizens um, for their, for their um, actions. Now, I'm wondering your, your sort of experience or views on what this sort of externally imposed uh, democracy or uh, acceptance of human rights implies for countries rather than the sort of homegrown civil society-based yeah. um, versions of that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the way you describe it is um, it, it's not really the way it plays out. In other words, if a government is already accountable to its own people, you don't have a situation where you need the conditionality. You can just, you know, the people will deal with it themselves. Where the external conditionality is required is where, through government repression, um, it is precluding um, its own people from having a say in how they're governed. And so I see the role of the external conditionality not to impose democracy, but rather to create the political space where then um, the homegrown democracy can emerge. Because in the end, change does happen locally. But um, the role of the international community is to, um, you know, to provide the protection so that that political space is there and, and domestic political change can move forward. Just building on uh, the issue of accountability, mm -hmm. um, say when you look at the United States, uh, do you see any accountability there for, well, for now the outgoing leaders, Bush, Cheney, say in the legalization of torture, um, 
the CIA black sites rendition. Uh, moving forward, did, do you or does uh, Human Rights Watch support, say, war crimes charges that were brought in Europe against people like Rumsfeld? Um, are these even – do these have any way of uh, succeeding, these types of things? Uh, just wondering your views on the accountability of the Bush administration. Yeah. Well, we're, we are completely for accountability. Um, you know, to, to, to order torture is, you know, a very serious crime, a crime of universal jurisdiction, meaning that it can be tried in Germany or France if need be, if you can't, you know, get it prosecuted at home. Um, there obviously is going to be nothing that's going to happen under Bush. And one of our fears is that Bush is going to leave office and pardon everybody, including himself. And so it's not clear that there's going to be room for criminal prosecution going forward. But one thing that is um, absolutely essential is that the next Congress or the next administration begin with some kind of serious truth-telling process. And by this, um, I don't mean just congressional hearings, because, you know, those of you who have seen these things, I don't know if it's better here in Australia, but in the United States, it's, you know, it's a bunch of senators, you know, posing for the TV cameras and, you know, giving speeches for the folks back home. It's not a serious investigation. We'd like to see something closer to the 9-11 Commission, which was a, you know, very serious effort, um, real in-depth, um, and, and produced a report that was quite powerful. We're going to need something like that to look at what went wrong in, in, in Bush counterterrorism policy, who was responsible, and what kind of accountability in, in principle there should be. So um, I don't expect that to happen in the next nine months. But um, come next January, this is going to be very high on the agenda that we're pushing on the new administration. Thanks. I'd like to ask you about one of the strategies which you said that Human Rights Watch uses in terms of harnessing the influence of countries like Australia in countries like Papua New Guinea, how does Human Rights Watch grapple with self-determination for developing countries? Yeah. Um, again, self-determination is one of these issues that we don't take on. Um, and the reason is that even though, I mean, there's, there's reference to it in human rights law, um, there is no principled way of figuring out what the self is. You know, is the self China or is the self Tibet? You know, is, is the self, you know, Australia or is it New South Wales or is it Sydney? Who knows? You know, I mean, there's no, there's no definition. And so um, we kind of leave that to politics to work that out. And, and our job is to ensure that the debate about such issues is free, that, that people can talk about, you know, whether Chechnya should secede from Russia or not. We're not going to get into the business of saying that it should or not, but we want to defend the debate about that issue. So that's how we take on those questions. Uh, in September and October of 2007, we saw the world finally take a, a good look at Burma, and we saw that um, there seemed to be a window of opportunity which, which shut. And um, my question is, the Burmese are, are very aware of sort of the symbolic nature of certain dates and activities, and in August of 2008, it will be 20 years since the democracy uprising. And I think there is a sense among some of the Burmese activists that there will be a hope for a push at that time, particularly given the fact that the democracy movement inside the country and outside the country are failing. The constitutional, the revisiting of the constitution seems to be an absolute failure. So the question is, is there a way in which advocacy organizations like Human Rights Watch and others can kind of 
preempt when they imagine that a movement might be starting at a certain time, at a time when things may be starting to steer up so that they can keep that window open a little bit longer so it doesn't shut as quickly? Yeah. Yeah, no, good question. Well, first, in terms of your, um, you know, the 20 years thing, I mean, it's not just August to August. I mean, as, as you probably know, um, the, you know, it's August 8, 1988 is generally considered the date of the, the pro-democracy movement, the launch of the pro-democracy movement in Burma. And what is happening on August 8, 2008? The Olympics. Um, so, um, you know, 20 years to the day, um, the Olympics are opening. And, of course, for the same reasons. I mean, the same kind of numerological craze that led to the choice of 8888 in Burma led the Chinese to choose 8808 for the Beijing Olympics. So um, we are certainly pointing out that parallel, which, um, you know, I think, you know, puts um, a greater um, premium on, on, on China doing what it can to try to curtail the Burmese junta's repression. Um, but in terms of, you know, how do we move forward, the, the military – I mean, this, this new constitutional process they have proposed, you say it's a failure. I would actually argue that it's a great success so far from the military's perspective because the point of this was to, you know, pretend that they were doing something and to have, you know, movement that wasn't going anyplace. And, and they've been very successful in sort of, you know, getting people to think, oh, well, you know, we shouldn't get it too involved now because they have started this constitutional process, even though it's a constitutional process where there'll be no election observers, there'll be no public debate. Um, Aung San Suu Kyi is preordained not to be able to engage in it. You know, it, it, it is a, a process designed to entrench, re-entrench, continue military rule. Um, that's the purpose, and it's, it's doing that. So um, given that the, the junta is quite determined to persist on this path, what can we do to increase the cost? Um, you know, one is we're trying to push for an arms embargo. So the Security Council so far has refused to do this because of the Russia-China veto. Um, India did recently stop selling arms, but we're going to need a Security Council action because that's the only way to get the Chinese in on the picture. And, and of course, if the military stops having access to arms, that makes it, you know, harder for it to maintain its power. Another thing that we're trying to do is to um, deprive the junta of access to the international financial system. Um, we're not pushing broad-based trade sanctions because those tend to hurt ordinary people and are, are rarely effective. But we have seen recently how effective these banking sanctions can be. I mean, the best example of it was um, in North Korea, where, you know, the U.S. Treasury Department essentially shut down just a handful of accounts in one tiny little bank in Macau, and suddenly North Korea was back to the negotiating table on nukes. Um, because it recognized that what was at stake was its access to the banking system around the world. And it's very hard to live without access to the banking system. I mean, you can, you know, try to bring in suitcases of cash, but, you know, that doesn't really run a country, let alone buy off an entire people. You, you need to get to the bank. And um, so if we could actually cut off Burma's access to the banking system, um, that would go a long way toward creating the kind of political protection that you're talking about. Um, the U.S. Treasury Department is doing what it can. The European Union is toying with this. Australia has been playing a useful role. We need Singapore in the picture. We need Japan. I mean, the idea is to serve any place where Burma might bank. Um, we need to get rulings that the designated leadership um, has lost its access to these accounts. And if we can pull that off, um, we'll make a big difference in Burma. 
I was just going to say, I don't know how an advocacy group does this, but I'm just thinking so much of how the images were out there and then they shut down the Internet. And it had such a powerful force in having the public start to look away. So I, I don't actually know what the solution is there, but just this idea that if there's ways to somehow keep those communication channels open, one which will surely be revolts in the future, peaceful revolts in the future. I think that can go a long way in terms no, of I, advocacy. I agree. We, I mean, even after they shut down the Internet, I mean, we snuck our researchers in. And we will continue to do that. We have no problem in a place like Burma operating clandestinely. I mean, it's dangerous, but there's no, you know, we've never followed this principle that we will only go where we're invited, you know. Uh, we'll, we'll go wherever, you know. Um, and so we'll keep that up. And, and, you know, part of the point is to get the images out and to kind of keep, keep repression real. Paulo Sergio Pinheiro, the special rapporteur on Burma, put out a report today in which he was talking about how things are actually getting worse. There are more people in prison now than there were even back in August, September. So, um, you know, there are people working on this, and, and you're absolutely right. We have, to keep, um, we have to keep it visible because it's so easy to start, you know, to forget. Um, and when, it, when there isn't news, it doesn't get the headlines, and you lose the public pressure. Ken, thanks, and I'm certainly looking forward to human rights having the opportunity to operate in Australia as well. I guess I want to sort of bring it back to the domestic in Australia for a minute, mm -hmm. and um, you may or may not be aware, I guess, of the ongoing debate here about a Charter of Rights or um, human, domestic human rights protection. Mm -hmm. And I guess I'm interested from your experience across the globe of what makes for an effective domestic um, what are the preconditions that make a, uh, effective charters or bills of rights um, operate. Um, obviously, just having one isn't enough. Many of the countries that you um, challenge and the regimes have human rights charters, but um, clearly they're not operating effectively. And I just wonder if you have any insights or comments on that. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I would, I mean, I would assume that if Australia has a charter, that it would be very meaningful. I mean, you obviously have a very strong independent judiciary here. Um, and so, yeah I, can't, yeah, I can't guarantee that it will rule the right way. I realize that it's, um, um, it's a fairly conservative Supreme Court at this moment. But, um, you know, over time that will change. But, I, you know, I think all the elements are in place that if you have the law that um, it can be implemented. Now, you know, you need legal aid, you need people to bring cases, and you need a, um, a judiciary that is independent and sympathetic. You've got the independence, you may not have the sympathy. Um, but, I, you know, I, I think the building blocks are there. I wouldn't worry about, you know, is this going to just be a sham, not in, not in Australia. So I, I think it's in a very important process. And it's, it's almost a little odd that Australia doesn't have a more entrenched, you know, constitutional level set of rights. It's somewhat anomalous. Uh, just moving back to your point about not uh, why wars are fought, but how they're fought. I was wondering, I think Human Rights Watch has written about it before, um, America's use of white phosphorus in Iraq. I think there has been something written about it in Fallujah, I'm not sure. But I was just wondering if you could comment on if you know anything about where and how it's being used and also uh, Human Rights Watch's position on that. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, phosphorus is, is you know, in, in incendiary weapons like that are, are, are prohibited. You know, these are, um, there's a protocol under this odd thing called the Convention on Conventional Weapons, which, which outlaws, you know, dum-dum bullets and, 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 you know, Phosphorus and things like that. I mean, a variety of, of, of weapons that are just deemed, you know, too cruel to use. And so, um, you know, in that sense, we're clearly opposed to it. Um, you know, there has been some reported use in Iraq. Um, I don't think anybody's been able to prove that it was used as an anti-personnel weapon rather than to sort of to illuminate the battlefield at night. 
and um, and intent matters under the treaty. So, um, you know, we we, have, we don't have evidence of you know widespread deliberate use of a phosphorus or its equivalent in populated areas in order to burn people, um, or you know to terrify people or what have you. And and in that sense, I think that the, you know, there was a little bit of um, you know of, of hyperbole around the, the handful of cases where that happened. So, but we we don't have evidence of, of that kind of systematic misuse. I have two questions. Number one, in your opinion, do you know there is a severe human rights violations in Sri Lanka committed on the minority Tamils by the Sri Lankan government? As a human rights watch organization, have you taken any action to highlight this on the international platform? Thank you. Um, yeah, no, we just put out a big report. I don't know how many pages, but, you know, like it's call it 200 pages or something which you can find on our website. It's, um, you know, it's www.hrw.org. But we put this out just a week ago or so and focused, in this case, principally on disappearances, which are you know, mostly by the government and mostly of Tamils. Um, not exclusively, but, but that was you know, a big part of the problem. And so, I mean, I just, you know, let me refer you to the website. But this has been a huge source of concern for us. And clearly, you know, since the ceasefire broke down, there has been a, you know, a, a an explosion of, of killings and disappearances, and um, we're deeply concerned about the, the direction in, in Sri Lanka. I should say that we are also concerned about LTTE abuses. They're used to child soldiers and other atrocities. So, you know, again, we don't take sides in the dispute. We look at the abuses by both sides. But, but what you point out is absolutely true, and we just did a big report on it. Um, your analysis about democracy reminds me a bit about the debate about the formation of the Human Rights Council and whether some countries should not be allowed to participate or be members of the council because of their human rights records, um, whether you know, there should be good countries and bad countries. And I wonder if you could just comment on that. Yeah. Well, you know, at, at some level, I actually agree that that's the case. I mean, if you go back to the Human Rights Commission, um, I mean, Human Rights Watch was actually very critical of the commission. And... and played a role in pushing for its abolition and replacement with the council. You know, in an odd way, the commission had become a victim of its own success. That, you know, for many years, people just ignored it, and it didn't do much, and it was fine. But um, when it began start criticize, to criticize governments, its stigma, you know, really being criticized by one's peers, was so powerful that, the, the, you know, the thugs of the world began flocking onto the commission for the purpose of undermining its work and avoiding its criticism. And so, you know, you woke up one day and suddenly half the members of the commission were people who were, you know, should have been in the dock, but were instead in the jury. And um, so it clearly needed to change. And with the new Human Rights Council, we didn't get everything we wanted by any means. I mean, there are some significant improvements, the fact that it meets year-round. And so, you know, the old commission, I mean, your, your genocide happens in August, and they say, no, sorry, come back in March when we're meeting. You know, and it's, you know, now that won't happen. Now it, it's, it's meeting all the time. It's easy to have an emergency session. Um, that's a step forward. This so-called universal periodic review, which means that every government gets its day in the dock, is also a great innovation because it means that the United States and certain superpowers that were, you know, exempt from scrutiny by the old commission now are going to have their, their time to be looked at formally. So that's all for the good. Um, the problem has been... Um, you know, the, the way the council has behaved. Because while there is a, um, you know, a relatively high threshold, you've you got to forget what the number is, but you need um, 
you know, I guess a majority of, of I think it's a majority of the, of the membership of the General Assembly. So you need, you know, almost 100 votes to get in, or maybe it's even 120, as I recall. But it's, it's a fairly high number. And it's a number that not everybody can get to. And so we've seen some abusive governments fail. We've seen others just not run at all. And that has had a modest effect on the membership of the, commission, of the council. But, but that said, what you have left um, has been a, a body that has been dominated by enemies of human rights enforcement. And you then have to look at it a little more carefully and say, why are they dominating? Because when you actually look at the numbers, the, the, those committed to human rights enforcement, you know, Australia is not a member, but sort of, you know, Australia-like countries around the world, are about equally represented with those that are firmly opposed to human rights enforcement. And then there's a body of sort of swing states between the two, which, for the most part, interestingly, are democracies, but that are not voting internationally the way they vote or the way they act at home. And I think the real challenge is to take governments like, you know, Senegal or or the Philippines or, or Ghana that um, really should be voting for human rights enforcement and convince them to do that. Um, and that's a, really an issue of diplomacy. It's something that the U.S. is utterly uninvolved in because they're boycotting the council. But it's, it's something where the European Union and the other sort of, you know, established democracies are going to have to take the lead. And if they don't, I think the council will fail. If we just keep going the way it is, the council will be preoccupied with criticizing Israel but not Palestinian abuses. It will occasionally maybe do a little something token for a Darfur or Burma, but otherwise it's going to ignore the rest of the world. And, and you know, people are going to give up on it. And so I think that the real challenge for us is to, um, to push the established democracies to do the political spade work needed to get these swing votes voting for human rights enforcement. I think it's doable, but it's going to take some work. A remarkably disciplined participatory democracy you've been, that you've self-constrained to end at exactly 7.30. Um, so if you could just join me in thanking Ken Roth for, for speaking and beginning to engage in what we very much hope will be an ongoing dialogue between Human Rights Watch and Australian Civil Society. Thank you. Thank you.